Advertising has changed, and TV ads, once reserved for big brands with bigger budgets, are now available to companies of all sizes and industries. Mountain's self-serve performance TV platform is leading the charge by making TV easier and more affordable than ever. Performance TV gives you access to tens of thousands of audience segments with ads served exclusively on top streaming networks and campaigns automatically optimized thousands of times a day for peak performance. The result is a high-impact ad that always finds its target, regardless of what show they're watching. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is an old and dear friend. She's been with us on the Advertising Week stage many, many, many times, and it's always a better stage with her on it. She has incredible perspective. It's a real challenge for me, Julia, to do this well because you are such a good, dare I say, great interviewer. And I'm talking about Julia Borston, who is CNBC's senior media and technology reporter. She's the creator of CNBC's Disruptor 50, and most recently, the author of a phenomenal book, which we're going to talk about at length, When Women Lead. So we are thrilled to have you. Welcome, Julia Borston. I am thrilled to be here, and it's truly an honor. I always love being on your stage for Ad Week, and it's great to get to talk to you for this podcast. Fantastic. So, Julia, one of the things that our crack uh, Great Minds research team came across was some conversations that you had about your mom inspiring you very early on and sort of instilling that notion in you that you could be whatever you wanted to be and that there you know, was no ceiling that could keep Julia Borston in. So can we start by talking a little bit about remembrances of your mom and those conversations early on and the influence that she played? Yes, it's interesting because in retrospect, I'm really glad that she made me believe that. But at the same time, she was wrong. Um, and, and it took me a while to realize that. So when I was growing up, my mom and my, and dad, both of them always told me you could be whatever you want when you grow up, by the time you grow up, everything will be equal. And my mom always told me this from the perspective of someone who grew up in the fifties and sixties, her mother was a homemaker and, uh, she was told by her parents that her, basically her choices were to be a nurse or to be a teacher. And that was really what was on the table for her. And women didn't really do many other things. Um, and of course, there were some rare exceptions, but that really wasn't on the table um, in the in the environment where my mom was growing up. And so um, she wanted me to believe that I could do anything. So I, I I bought it. I believed it. I thought it was so obvious that it was boring and maybe rolled my eyes at my mom one too many times. But then I went off to college. Um, I was interested in doing law or all sorts of different things. And I fell in love with journalism and and got a job at Fortune magazine. And my first day there, I realized she was totally wrong. All the halls of power were dominated by men. Not only was the magazine industry run by men, but all the companies that we wrote about and reported on, the most powerful ones were all run by men. Yes, there were some women, but they were the rare exceptions. And my mother had painted me this, this picture of, a, of, a, of an equitable world that really still does not exist. Well, let's let's go right where you just went and right into the book. I, I do want to go back and talk about sort of your journey from fortune forward. But you have some incredible stats in the book and 
of all investment capital and a number that's declining going to women. I, I would have lost a big bet at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas if someone asked me what that number was going to be. So last year, about 300, sorry, let me say that again. Last year, about $330 billion in venture capital was deployed. About 2% of that went to female-founded companies. A much bigger chunk went to companies with co-ed teams, like male, female founding teams, about 15.5%. But the remainder, about 82% of all venture capital dollars went to male-only founding teams. And you're right, though the percentage of funding to co-ed teams has increased, the percentage to female-only teams has decreased. The average over the past decade was about 3%. It declined to 2% in 2021. So to me, I, I was flabbergasted by those numbers. And, and those numbers are so crazy in, in no small part because of those numbers are from 2021, but also because they don't make sense because there's so much data and research showing that companies with co-ed leadership or female founders simply perform better. Diversity is just better for business. So those crazy gender gaps in funding are nonsensical to me and, a, and also a huge arbitrage opportunity. So I literally just came back from Johannesburg. You may know we're launching Advertising Week in Africa in awesome. February of 23. And I was having lunch with the dean of the Gordon Business School, which is sort of the Harvard Business School, and they actually have a partnership with Harvard uh, from Africa. Uh, it's a world-class institution, uh, uh, incredible, incredible place. And the dean and I were talking about sort of a market positioning for Advertising Week Africa around that very notion that business and diversity go hand in hand, very much like Paul Pullman when he successfully wrapped a number of Unilever brands around sustainability, he proved that doing good for the, for the planet was also good for the bottom line. In this day and age, 2021, you said, Julia, not 1821. How could we be where we are with those statistics? That seems absolutely incredible to me. Well, I think the the reason for that gender gap actually ties back into something that the advertising industry is very interested in, in, in tackling and addressing, and that is the importance of pattern matching and the idea that there are some very dominant images that have 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 created these archetypes in our culture about what a founder looks like. And investors are not malicious. They like to make money. They should be pursuing pursuing wealth and, and investing in the, in the teams that will be most profitable for them. But especially at the early stages, before companies have track records, investors fall into pattern matching. This idea, and I'm not using the word unconscious bias because I think that term is overused. Pattern matching is this very simple idea that we have an idea of what a founder looks like. We have an idea of what a successful CEO looks like. And our instinct, our natural human instinct, not, again, not malicious, is to try to find people or things that fit into the patterns that we know about. And as a result, um, investors in early stage companies say, I want to invest in a guy who reminds me of the last guy that made me a lot of money. And or I want to invest in a guy who reminds me of Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos. That's the human instinct. And that's why I say what the advertising industry is focused on now is so relevant because images matter. I wanted to share the stories of these phenomenal women in my book to share some new patterns of what leaders can look like. They are diverse. They are varied. They come in all shapes and sizes with all sorts of different backgrounds. And I think that's why all of these initiatives 
um, that various ad agencies are pursuing to change the images, to change the types of people you see on your screen is so important because representation really matters. It, and it matters whether you're talking about young girls saying you can't be what you can't see or whether it's about investors pursuing this natural instinct of like not ever having seen that many successful women before in their business world. So they just don't have that as a pattern to, to match to. Now, you also go through something which I thought was super interesting and talks about the traits that one needs to be successful today. And give or take eight some odd percent, uh, a little higher than 2%, but still a pretty darn low number of all uh, CEOs are female, yet the attributes that anyone, irrespective of gender, needs to succeed, women over-index men on attributes like empathy, for example, like vulnerability, like communal approach. Can we talk about some of those attributes, which is also a big part of when women lead? Sure, and yes, just to, to explain how I got there. Look, I'm a journalist, right? And I love telling stories. You know, I love doing interviews and telling stories. And um, I wanted to tell the stories of these exemplary female leaders and to hold them up as a new kind of pattern for people to understand these new images of what leaders look like. And from there, I was noticing all these commonalities, things that these very varied women had in common. And I went from these 120 interviews into about 300 academic studies. And I dug deep into each of these traits I was seeing, and I was you know, keeping track of them on these giant whiteboards and, um, and I found an incredible wealth of knowledge and depth of research about these traits that women are more likely to have that in fact correlate to success in leadership. And I'll just run through a couple of these skills because these are skills that though women are more likely to have them and lead with them, they're really essential for everybody. Empathy, you mentioned empathy, that's an essential one. Um, I was talking with someone recently and they said, isn't empathy like about being nice? I was like, no, empathy is not being about nice. Empathy is the definition of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. That can be a really strategic trait, something that you do strategically to understand what someone else wants. Think about the advertising industry. If you're not empathetic, with a customer, you're not going to know what message is going to resonate with them. If you're not empathetic, you're not going to know what products you should be developing with them or think about negotiating in, in any situation. You need to be able to empathize with your counterparty negotiation to know what they want. So I think we need to reframe empathy. It's not about being nice. You could be compassionate and that may start with empathy, but empathy itself is about simply the value of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And another one, which I think is really interesting, and again, now post-pandemic in this new weird, uncertain world we live in, more important than ever, vulnerability. Vulnerability ties into humility, but this idea of admitting what you don't know, say what you're great at, say what you're confident in, but admit what you don't know, because that is going to invite collaboration. It's going to encourage people to step up and be leaders themselves. And I would say uh, now more than ever, this is the time when you want everyone to be, you know, feeling comfortable getting out of their um, insecurities and, and being leaders themselves in any organization. And then one that was really, really surprising to me is gratitude. I was doing all of these interviews and I did a series of interviews and the term gratitude kept on coming up. Women saying, I practice gratitude every morning and that's something that I use to really drive my decision-making or I'm so grateful for the opportunity to solve this problem or I'm so grateful I had such a terrible experience in corporate America because that made me realize what it was that I really wanted to do. And I didn't ever associate gratitude with business or with leadership, but then I found all of this research that indicates that gratitude enables people to have more patience. Gratitude makes people say, I'm really comfortable with where I am now. I feel grateful for so many things. 
because I have that gratitude, I can plan for the long-term. I don't need to be going for the near-term win. And as you know, in business, these long-term plans are what are so essential. Talk about building relationships with customers, um, establishing new ideas about how to do business. We really all need to take that long-term approach. And this idea that gratitude, which women feel more comfortable and enjoy practicing more than men, is a key piece of that I thought was so interesting. And Paul Pullman, outlier and leader, but women also over-index on the contemporary, uh, I would call it imperative, of linking purpose and profit. Oh, yes. So that's another key thing. Female leaders are far more likely than their male counterparts to have purpose-driven companies. That means companies that specifically are going to benefit the environment, they're going to benefit society in addition to making money. Um, and what's essential here is that there's this, this stat that women are 20% more likely. But what I found in my research is that it's far higher than that. And that women think about purpose, especially when they're founding companies, because the, the stakes are so high, the risks are so, so massive, and the challenges are so huge. And I could go through all the reasons why purpose-driven companies are more important. Obviously, connecting with customers, people want to spend money on purpose-driven companies, employees are going to work harder for purpose-driven companies. But here's the real one, one that really uh, sort of knocked my socks off. Founder after founder, it, CEO after CEO said to me, I needed to do this as a purpose-driven company because I knew times would get tough. I knew it would be hard. Um, to do this, to keep on going. And there were definitely times when I almost gave up, but knowing that if I succeeded, I was going to have an impact beyond just making money. That's what kept me going. And I think for anyone in business, whether you're launching a, you know, an agri agriculture company that's going to help save the environment or a health tech company that's going to be helping people feel, you know, feel better and live longer. Even if you're just running a company that's just making, making money and yielding returns to your investors, Everyone needs to know what their purpose is. Really understanding your purpose is so important for having that extra motivation when times get tough. And again, this is something that women are more likely to do, but men should be doing as well. So we have a lot of ground to cover, but the book is so interesting. Let's just stay where we are for a few minutes longer. Uh, take us behind the curtain of the process of doing what you did. It's an enormous amount of original research. You're on the air, you have two children, you know, you were pretty busy before you took on this uh, big enchilada. Take us behind the curtain of what's involved in doing something that you've done, awful lot of original research. Uh, take us into the, uh, the laboratory, if you will. So, so Matt, you know, I love to do interviews. I love talking to, to smart, fascinating people and big thinkers. And this project really started out as a storytelling exercise. I wanted to tell these women's amazing stories. And I started off, and I'm going to give you the timeline because it's interesting here, relevant to the pandemic. I started thinking about it like December, 2019. I started working on a proposal, January, February, 2020. And I wanted to tell these amazing stories because I didn't think that people knew some of the phenomenal female leaders who were out there. And yes, we've talked about Elizabeth Holmes, but she's an example that is so rare and so horrendous, but yet somehow has defined a whole generation of women in tech. And I thought it was just horrible and not representative of the reality. So I start off just wanting to tell these positive, great stories. Then the pandemic hit. And I remember in um, March 2020, I think it was March 10th, I was doing my last interview in person before the pandemic shut the world down. And I was going to the CEO of Beauty Counter's office. Beauty Counter is a massive company, just sold to Carlisle, recently sold to Carlisle for about a billion dollars. 
And I remember I just got a text from my kid's school saying the world was going to be shut down or your school was going to be shut down until further notice. I show up at this office and we're like, should we do this? What's going on? And I started to talk to her, Greg Renfrew, former CEO of Beauty Counter, about her business and how she was balancing this near-term decision-making with long-term planning, how she was going to adapt a business that is that was at the time based on women selling things in other women's homes or in their own homes in person, trying on samples face-to-face, -face, how she was going to adapt this for a pandemic digital age. And listening to her talk, I just remember thinking, wow, like I'm not just telling stories of amazing women. This is a moment for me to catalog and follow women navigating the biggest economic challenge since the since the World War II, since World War II. And we've never seen anything like this before. And who knows how it's going to all turn out. But this is an economic test. This is a test of business leadership. So I went from just from one storytelling thing to like trying to understand how to follow these important businesses and innovators and disruptors through this moment of, of unprecedented challenge. Um, so I went home from that interview and I was like, okay, I better figure out how to interview people on Zoom. And I ended up setting up about 120 interviews, which I did on Zoom, some on the phone, but most on Zoom or Teams or whatever digital tools we had. And um, I And I could pull it off because I wasn't traveling for work. So Matt, as you know, I, I used to always be on an airplane. I would always be traveling to San Francisco or New York or wherever. And all of a sudden I was stuck at home. And the good news about being stuck at home is that everyone had to say yes to an interview with me. Right. <laughs> no one had exactly. an excuse of why to turn me down. They just all said, sure, like I'm stuck at home too. So this weird circumstance of the pandemic enabled me to have a much larger volume of interviews than I ever would have considered otherwise. And I think it actually turned out to be an amazing opportunity to understand, let me put this another way. I think it turned out to be an amazing opportunity to catch people at a moment of massive reflection. I think the pandemic forced leaders, particularly business leaders, to take a step back and think, why am I doing things this way? What really drives me? What led me to be this kind of leader? How do I want my company to be in the future? So on one hand, I got amazing access because everyone was stuck at home. And on the other hand, I got people at this moment of profound reflection and, and sort of self-evaluation. And I think that ended up giving me a far more interesting and nuanced look at leadership than I ever would have gotten had I tried to do this before the pandemic. Um, so it was really, in many ways, it was a great gift for me as a, as a reporter. And it certainly for all of us was an equalizer on what is genuinely important. And I think that's part of what you're saying also in terms of that moment of reflection. You find people all over the world. You had someone who was in a healthcare startup from Sierra Leone in the book that you featured. How do you find someone in Sierra Leone? Well, so she was in Sierra Leone. Now she is an amazing startup based in Brooklyn. Um, she has a company called City Block Health, and I'd love to talk more about her. Her name is Dr. Toyin Ajayi, CEO of City Block Health, and she's just a phenomenal example of all of these characteristics of female leadership. But I would say the process of finding these the women I write about in the book was kind of this beautiful daisy chain where I start off by asking investors. I asked investors, both male and female, who are some of the most inspiring women or, or different types of uh, female CEOs you've invested in? And I started with those conversations and then they led me 
to to a lot of these uh, women who I had not heard of before, like Toyin Ajayi from City Block Health. Um, there were some women I knew I had to include because they had been among the very few who have taken companies public, like Jen Hyman from Rent the Runway, Katrina Lake from Stitch Fix. Some of these IPOs, by the way, happened during the time I was reporting the book. And then some women I knew I wanted to include because they were so iconic, like Sally Krawcheck, who was at one time the most powerful woman on Wall Street, and then used her outsider perspective to build um, a financial services platform for and by women. So it was a combination of the names that I wanted to give you a different perspective on them, different insight into their stories, and then people you had never heard of before, but whose stories I wanted you to know. And um, and it was I have to say I was really blown away by the generosity of women introducing me to other women. Um, there was one woman I interviewed. She said, "I don't care if you include my story. You have to talk to this other woman. She's phenomenal. She's so inspiring. She inspires me every day." And I just think about this this amazing community of women who are really trying to support each other and lift each other up, and how very different it is from the cliches and the and the narratives back in the 80s and 90s that women were out to get each other and not going to support each other. And I really believe that times have changed. And in everything I've seen, women are really helping each other out. Yeah, one of my uh, dearest uh, relationships, most treasured relationship in my life and career was a great Olympic filmmaker, Bud Greenspan. Bud's been gone a number of years. He had uh, done every official film for the Olympics, telling incredible stories of athletes who often spent a lifetime of training could be just for 10 seconds. Every Olympics, 1948 to 2010. Wow. And Bud would be criticized often by the media saying, oh, Greenspan, you see everything through rose-colored glasses. And Bud would say the media spends 90% of their time on the 10% that's bad, and he spent 100% of his time on the 90% that's good. What I love about When Women Lead is that it tells these incredible positive stories and not that there weren't difficulties along the journey for these founders, but it's incredibly inspiring. I, I totally subscribe to his approach to the world. By the way, I would say in terms of female founders, it's probably 2% that's bad, but they get all the attention. The Elizabeth Holmeses of the world or people who have slightly less horrific examples of fraud or, or bad behavior, they get all of the attention. And I think it's really important to shine a spotlight on the people who have succeeded despite the odds because they're really important role models and can have a huge impact on the way we think everyone thinks about business, not just young women, but but investors and and male CEOs. We need to change the the images that we see, as you so know, the that to, to change the conversation about leadership. And frankly, I was going to spend two and a half years working on a book. It needed to be something positive. I couldn't mire myself in in depressing stuff. Although I have to say, there's a ton of very depressing data in there. But I figured out how to formulate it, formulate it as a tool for success rather than just something to get you down. Yeah, the data cuts against the notion that we're making progress. The data cuts against the notion that we're making progress, but I actually found the most dispiriting data that I waded through to be about all the ways in which women face double standards. Um, I think there were 50 studies about all the double standards and it's, you know, women are judged more harshly for showing emotion, for using humor, for showing anger, for succeeding in a male dominated field, for failing in a female dominated field, for not being nurturing, for not showing warmth. I mean, the number of ways in which women face double standards is mind boggling, but I, as a, as a perpetual optimist and, and really positive oriented person, I think it, I have come to believe it is in, incredibly important. It is essential 
for everyone to understand all of those negative things. And that's because I think you can't conquer something unless you understand it. You can't climb a mountain unless you know how high it is. You can't blast through a boulder unless you know how big it is. And women in particular need to see that data to know how to succeed. And how much of this, Julia, do you think is generational? Do you think the next generation that follows will do better than the current one? I think that it is an evolution. I think it is a generational evolution. And it's interesting because there's some fascinating data I write about in When Women Lead about how women are reluctant to ask their network, professional or friend network, for professional help. And there's fascinating data about how men are used to offering favors and giving favors and asking for favors and saying, I need an introduction to this person. I'm trying to raise money, help me out. And just asking for what they need professionally. The data indicates that women are very happy to offer help, happy to make this introduction for you. What can I do? They are very uncomfortable asking for help. And that obviously is puts women at a huge disadvantage. If they're not going to be doing that, behaving in the same way that their male counterparts are, it puts them at a huge disadvantage. This is 100% socialized. There's, of course, nothing biological about this. But what's interesting is it, it seems to me like the youngest women in the workforce, women in their early 20s, are a lot more comfortable with this than women in their 30s and 40s are. And I think that generationally that is starting to change. So there are a lot of these things that are shifting over time, but there are other things that we still need to rely on data to overcome these biases. So for instance, I was talking to the CEO, the female CEO, um, the former female CEO of a, let me back up. I was talking to a woman who used to run a public company. She founded it, a uh, uh, public company. She's no longer uh, running it. And we were talking about pay equity. And she was saying, women do do some things much better. All my female managers are have far more diverse teams, both in terms of race and in terms of gender. That is borne out by the data. Female leaders, A, invest more in mentorship, B, invest more in diversity and inclusion of their teams. They're going to have far more diverse teams without having any sort of external um, impetus for that. But when it comes to pay equity, she said, I couldn't believe it. Female-led company bunch of female managers, they didn't pay their male and female employees equally. You would think that women managers at a female-led company would, would of course noted to have pay equity, but she said it's so unconscious that even the female managers are paying their male employees more than their female employees. And, and, and it, but it's implicit, it's not intentional. So she, she said, and I agree with her, you need to have systems and processes and data to make sure that that doesn't happen. It's better for everyone if people get paid equally. You're going to have better retention. You're going to have less resentment, um, you know, less employee churn. But I think that some of these things change really slowly. And it's not just about men. It's about everyone needing to embrace the technology that we can all use to make sure we get rid of those biases. So when we launched Advertising Week Asia in Tokyo years ago, one of the keynoters we had was the then CEO of Shiseido. And he showed uh, the average Japanese board of directors a photograph. And it was all what you'd expect, old, white-haired Japanese men. And then he showed a picture of the Shiseido board. And there were women, there were Europeans, there were Blacks. And it was uh, what you would call a classically diverse board. And he attributed their success to that and attributed the lack of success of many Japanese companies in relative terms to the lack of diversity. You just went through statistics about women-led companies, more diverse teams. Clearly, the bottom line is affected positively 
by embracing diversity. Why is business so slow to get that message? I think it goes back to the thing we start off talking about, pattern matching. Um, people want what's familiar to them. Investors want to invest in people who either remind them of themselves or who are similar to people who have succeeded in the past. There's this instinct towards the familiar. And um, and and if you, have, if you haven't read my book and you haven't seen all the examples of how amazing female leaders can be, then I think it feels unfamiliar and even scary for people who are looking at a new model of leadership. Um, I also think that there haven't, I mean, there, the, the news is out there, right? You know, I've reported on these stats of companies with diverse boards perform better. Companies with diverse C-suites, they perform better. I've reported on this. It's been in Fortune Magazine. It's been all over the place, but it hasn't been all aggregated. So many different studies about all the different ways in which diversity pays off into one place, um, the way it is in my book. And that was really important to me to sort of bring it all into one place. I have 40 pages of endnotes. If you don't like one of my studies, there are three others you can pick from for every um, for every category. Um, but I think change moves really slowly, and it's such a complex problem. It's, it requires a very complex solution. And you know, there's been some great data from these McKinsey Lean In studies. Um, you know, the most recent one talked about how women at the VP level and above are leaving because they're frustrated. They feel like they're not getting credit for their work. One a couple of years ago talked about. The the um what was it called? It was like a gap in the ladder. It was with a oh, broken rung. And this idea that women are entering the workforce at the same level, but then there's a broken rung on the ladder, and women are dropping out because maybe they leave to have kids, and then they never can catch up with their male counterparts. So I think it takes real awareness um, and a real understanding that investing in DEI is not a nice thing to do. It's not something you do to be good to your employees, you do it because you want to be more successful. And I think that there needs to be a shift in the conversation away from thinking of DEI initiatives as philanthropic ventures towards understanding that if you want to be a successful business, you have to have a diverse employee base and you need to shift the conversation towards what am I doing to succeed? Having diverse employees, having diverse management, that is going to make me more successful. And, um, and I actually think that this whole movement has been hurt by the fact that that there's this narrative that you're doing it to be nice to your female workers. Yeah, I agree with you. And this is going back to the conversation I was having last week with the Dean of the business school in Johannesburg. There's a, the case here for diversity is a business case. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's, let's go back a little bit and talk about uh, early days working uh, as a writer at fortune, give or take 20 years ago. And that was a very different world. The iPhone was six years away. Facebook was five years away. YouTube was seven years away. Almost all of the subjects that you're talking about now, the impetus in large part, I suppose, for what just happened at Disney. Disney Plus was probably one of the single biggest drivers of that decision by the Disney board, what has and what hasn't happened. Uh, and the race to streaming more broadly, certainly an interesting subject. but. Talk about what it was like to cover business then versus now. Well, from a technology standpoint, you're right. I started off with a cell phone when I entered the working world and then I got a BlackBerry. That was very exciting. And it was a while before I had an iPhone. I mean, the BlackBerry, it's crazy. Um, talk about an industry that didn't, or a company that did not evolve enough to survive. Um, 
You know, I remember when I was a young reporter, I was 21 years old when I started. I felt very conscious of how young and female I was in a group of very old men. And pretty much everyone I interviewed was an old, was it, everyone was older than me. And pretty much everyone I interviewed was a man, at least for the first couple of years. And I was constantly questioned about my bona fides, my ability to do my job. I was um, questioned like why I had any right to to be critical or ask questions um, of, of companies and mutual fund managers. I remember uh, one mutual fan man- fund manager when I was doing a story about him literally said to me like, you have no right to write about my company. You're too young. You don't know anything. <laughs> and I was very self-conscious about that. And as a result, I overprepared. And I figured that no one was going to be able to question my question me if I did so much homework that I was far more prepared than anyone else could be. And so I, I think I sort of turned it into an advantage. And I'm a big believer that you could turn flaws, um, which are really just traits into superpowers. And for me, I was going to, I was going to overprepare until I did not feel insecure and nervous anymore. And, and sort of like do the homework to get, get rid of the imposter syndrome. And I think it worked. It ended up serving me in good stead. Um, and I also think that, you know, I was very conscious of being the only woman and I dressed in these boxy suits and these funny glasses I didn't really need. I really only need, now I only need glasses for driving and at the movie theater. So back then I really didn't need them, but they felt like armor to me and protection. And I felt like dressing like myself and looking like even like myself without this armor would just put me at a disadvantage and I wouldn't be taken seriously. And it was only over time becoming a reporter on CNBC, getting older, feeling more comfortable in my skin, that I realized that I didn't have to put on any armor. I could just be sort of the best version of myself and not try to put on a costume. And for what was then CNBC Business News and MediaMoney.CNBC, you were an early blogger in the space. Oh, yes. That, I was... that, that also was a different time. Yes, it was a different time. I mean, when I was at Fortune Magazine, we used to write this email newsletter every day, we would, which effectively was an early blog. But every day around when the market closed, we would write this newsletter and send it out to our our, our, um, our email list. And then when I went to CNBC, I wanted to keep writing. So I would write articles that went online. And I had, a, um, I had an early, I guess you would call it an early blog. Um, but it was effectively just news articles that were being posted immediately instead of this long drawn out print process. But um, but it was really fun. And I always felt like I could be entrepreneurial within this the confines of being in a big media company. And CNBC has certainly encouraged me to be entrepreneurial, um, which is one reason I've loved my job and been here for over 16 years. It's a great, great story. So I love the Disruptor 50. And I went back before we uh, came on the air today and found I had bookmarked one back in 2013, when you featured a little startup uh, WhatsApp back then in 2013. Can we talk about the origin of the Disruptor 50? And I just love what you've continued to do with that property. And I love that you partner now with uh, our friends at the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, yes. It's been such a gift to be able to do this project. Um, as I mentioned, I love interviews and I love entrepreneurs. I'm fascinated by the mindset of innovators thinking differently, wanting to do things differently, wanting to reinvent businesses. And CNBC is obviously focused on public companies. We report on stocks and investing and and how people can can get access to public companies. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to do too much on private companies. But back um, in 2007, when I, I started at CNBC in 2006, I remember 2007, 2008, I was reporting on 
these really fascinating startups. And I remember reporting on Facebook in the very early days. Nobody cared about Facebook. And I decided I wanted to cover social media. And I interviewed Mark Zuckerberg in the very early days. And when I and then I covered Facebook through its very exciting IPO. And I remember thinking in that IPO moment, we need to be getting these companies like Facebook on the radar of our viewers long before they go public. It doesn't make sense to wait until a company's on its roadshow to tell investors about it. These companies like Facebook represent a sea change. They are disruptors. They are either going to become the giants of tomorrow or they are already challenging the big public companies that have been around for forever and forcing them to change. So I pitched to my bosses this new list that would create a structure for us to talk about startups in a formula that would make sense for public investors. So every year we put together this Disruptor 50 list. It's open for nominations. Um, I think last year we had 1,300 nominations and um, anyone can nominate their companies. And then we have an advisory board of, of academics um, and experts. And then we engage all of my colleagues that I can get my hands on. I, I bring in so many of my colleagues to work together to evaluate these companies. And it's a combination of quantitative and qualitative metrics. And we put together this list every year. And what we really try to do is look at how technology is disrupting every single industry. Every company is a tech company. I firmly believe that. I don't think you'd be hard pressed to find a company that is not using technology in some way. And this list looks at how technology is disrupting every different sector, whether it's education, um, or by the way, we've had, we went through a phase of having a lot of ad tech companies on there, not so many recently. Transportation, you know, we've had Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, and we're really digging into what are the trends that are redefining the economy and changing the status quo. And then what are the companies that you should know about? Because they're going to be on your radar pretty soon. Uh, either you're using them as a consumer or you're going to be thinking about investing them in the future. So it has been a great gift to get to do this project because it's become this year-round celebration of innovation. And I get to interview so many phenomenal CEOs uh, through the Disruptor 50. Is there one particular that jumps out that you thought would make it, it didn't, and you know, the or, most or, spectacular or, and or one and or one that you know just or the other way, one that surprised you. So look, if we didn't have some companies that failed spectacularly, then we wouldn't be swinging big enough. Um, just as some of these startups have to swing big, there was one notable example of a massive failure, and that is a company that was backed by Barry Diller that you may remember called Aero. I, I think it was spelled A E R E O. And it was probably ahead of its time, but it was a company that enabled anyone to get uh, television over the satellite, like satellite TV over the internet. And it was effectively free. And it was a big swing um, and seemed too good to be true, but incredibly disruptive for the TV landscape. And it was put out of business by, by um, regulators. They said, this is illegal. What you're doing is not legal. You can't have mini satellites somewhere in say that, you know, you, Julia, get to pay $5 a month to get something that would be a lot more expensive. Normally, it's a it's an unfair workaround. So regulators put it out of business. But I think it was absolutely worth putting on the list the year that we had it on before it was made to be obsolete. But I think another example of a company that is that fell on and off the list is 23andMe. This is a company that digs into your genetic data, gives consumers unprecedented access to an understanding of their genetic data in a way that no one has before. Ann Wojcicki is the CEO, really innovative, really disruptive. 
And then guess what? The FDA tried to put it out of business. They said, you cannot give this, this information direct to consumers. So that year, the FDA looked like they were going to put it out of business. We took it off the list. We're like, there's no way this company qualifies. It might go out of business. But then Ann Wojcicki innovated. She iterated. She figured out how they could change what it is that they gave to consumers about their personal data and also how to partner with pharmaceutical companies to use that data to create successful and meaningful and powerful um, uh, pharmaceuticals to help people. And they came back on the list, you know, and they were named to the list again, ultimately went public. Um, and Ann Wojcicki is a perfect example of a phenomenal, disruptive female CEO who's really reimagining an industry um, giving and helping people. I would say that's absolutely a, a purpose-driven company. Um, but that's a perfect example of one where they were definitely a disruptor. They were growing fast. They were disrupting. They were almost put out of business. We didn't know what was going to happen to them. And then they they made it back. But not every disruptor survives. But it was a really fascinating ride to watch that one. Great, great stories. So uh, let's talk about something you touched on earlier, which is you know, we tend to talk about the 2% that are bad. You mentioned Elizabeth Holmes and some of the others. And culture in general um, leans often towards tearing people apart today. One of the things that I love about CNBC, and I feel the same way about the BBC and Sky in the UK, is you're not getting someone's take on the news. You're getting the news straight up, straight down the middle. These are the facts. This is what's happening. And of course, there are pundits and experts who can comment on that, but you're not trying to get me to take a position. Uh, and we all know sort of who I'm talking about these days on either side of the political aisle. Are we doing ourselves an injustice today? All this accolade about uh, Bob Iger coming back seems to have been one of very few who got out on top with his reputation intact and is now being viewed, and I, I want your take, but sort of as this conquering hero returning to save Disney. Time will tell whether or not that's true. But can we talk about you know where we are right now in business and culture, and are we doing our leaders an injustice by often tearing them apart? Well, I would say as a business journalist, the reason I've been a business journalist for 22 years is because I love that it's about the facts. It's the news. It's not opinion. I'm telling you whether the stock is going up and down. If it's going up and down, I'm explaining to you why. And I feel like, um, you know, I love to tell positive stories and I'm never going to intentionally look for someone to tear them down. But if there's a negative story, I will tell it. Look, I reported on how the entire Me Too time's up. Um, you know, wave impacted so many companies that I report on um, and are part of my beat. But um, I think that's the thing about, about this. I mean, whether you're talking about the Bob Iger narrative or something else, I mean, you look at the stock movement, look at the response of analysts, look at the fact that the stock plummeted, um, you know, plummeted after its most recent earnings report. And I think that, um, you know, America loves a comeback story. <laughs> And there are these there are these sort of instincts to try to create narratives um, to explain what's going on. But I do think that business news, our intention, at least at CNBC, is to be as direct and fair and balanced as possible in every situation. Um, and it's been fascinating as a reporter who does cover Disney and who used to interview Bob Iger all the time, then interviewed Bob Chapek, and now I hope we'll interview Bob Iger again very soon to just watch the sign curve that is the stock price and also the, the leadership. 
Yeah, it, it, it's a great story. Were you surprised as, as anyone by what happened in that announcement and the way it was done? You know, um, it, it sounds like it all happened very quickly. Um, so I was surprised, but I was also not surprised. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like there's that element of surprise when something catches you off guard, but then when you understand it, you're like, oh, well, I understand why it happened. I think things that are, there are things that are surprising and things that are confounding. This was surprising in the timing and the nature, but certainly made sense and was not confounding. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I was watching uh, our friend Janice Min on CNBC yesterday talking about what just happened. And uh, the broader rush to streaming seems to have been incredibly poorly thought out in many ways. And uh, I'd love to get your take on on that. Evolution. Well, it's interesting. I was just talking to a, a source about media deals and media M&A and this idea that you can't talk about a deal or you can't talk about anything if you don't talk about the cost. And it's foolish to say anything is good or bad. From a financial perspective, it all depends on how much it costs. You can rush to streaming. And if you're maybe not spending too much money on it, it's a great idea. If you're spending too much money on it, it's a terrible idea. So it's all about the cost. So you can't separate the idea from the financial implication. Right. And so any idea could be good or bad, depending on how much you're investing in it or not investing in it or how profitable it is. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind. And this this source of mine sort of reminded me of that, because as we look towards sort of what the next phases in media, whether it's, you know, whether it's putting more content on streaming or less content on streaming or whether, um, you know, Disney buys out the rest of Hulu from NBC Universal or NBC Universal buys it out from Disney none of these deals are good or bad. It's all about on, on their on their merits. It's all about the cost of how much people are spending for things because any combination of any of these media companies could be good or bad depending on how much the, the investment is. Yeah, many years ago, I was introduced and it was long after he had retired to F. Ross Johnson from RJR Nabisco days. And he was one of the chief protagonists in one of the more famous books about business, I think, that's ever been written, Barbarians at the Gate, which you'll recall also became a, a film, did not portray Ross in very flattering terms. And I asked him for his take. It was early days on Facebook. And they, at that point, they were only focused on growing the user base. There was no real revenue yet. It was early days for advertising revenue for Facebook, long before Carolyn and that team came in. And he said, he was in his 80s by then, but he said something that was so simple, but I thought so prescient. He said, sooner or later, you have to make money. And that is I, probably true in every situation. But by the way, if Facebook had to worry about generating revenue at the beginning, it wouldn't have grown its, ad, its, its user base as fast. So there's that. So sooner or later, you do have to worry about making money. But some of these companies, whether it's Uber or Facebook, or Twitter succeeded because they didn't have to think about it for so long. And that is the power of venture capital. And that is why I focused on tech companies in my book. Fantastic. So let's circle back as we wrap to the book one more time. And you interviewed so many people, covered so much ground. Was there one particular one when you wait, lay awake at night and you think and reflect on it that really stood out to you that touched you both professionally and personally? You know, it's like being asked to pick your favorite child. You know, there is no, there is no favorite. There are so many amazing stories in here. And actually, and I think about bits of their, of these stories from so, dozens of different women every day as I navigate my world, my life. Um, but there is this one story, and I mentioned her, that I think encompasses so many different characteristics and traits that we should all be thinking about. And that's Toyin Ajayi, who started off in Sierra Leone trying to fix a pediatric hospital there. And there was something she learned in Sierra Leone that I think about often, 
which is that she had come from, she'd gone to medical school in the, in, in the UK. She'd gone to Stanford. She had, you know, lots of different types of experiences and she was coming to really help this hospital better serve their patients. And she realized what she had to do was actually not related to the medical piece of it. It wasn't about being a doctor. It was about understanding what was wrong in the system. And she talks about how everyone was talking about the medical failures and the illnesses and this and that. And she realized there was no running water. There were pipes running into the building, but the water wasn't flowing out of the taps. And she said, medicine or not, we can't do our jobs until we have running water. I mean, think about sterilizing instruments. And so she went out and fixed the water supply. And she talks about you know, hiring a plumber to look at all the points of connection, fixing the water supply. So people didn't have to literally bring water into the building in, in buckets. And this idea of taking a step back and thinking, what is broken here? Not what is the band-aid that I need to put on the problem? Not as what is the immediate sickness that I can treat, but what is the fundamental issue that needs to be, be addressed? So both in Sierra Leone and then when she was a resident in Boston, she found a fundamental lack of trust in the medical system. In Sierra Leone, pa parents weren't bringing in their children until they were far too sick. In Boston, patients weren't following doctor's orders. Um, and she found that there was this lack of trust. And she said, well, how can we rebuild that trust? Another key thing she found is leading with empathy. And this is why I say she encompasses so many of these traits but she had to put herself in the patient's shoes. And she said, this patient, I have to discharge this patient out to the, to the streets. Maybe this is a patient who is homeless. Of course, they're gonna come back month after month to the emergency room because they're not getting healthier. What is the water supply that needs to be fixed? And then she took a step back. It's not about just giving them medical care. It's about treating the whole patient. So now her company, City Block Health, they have people who are effectively social workers who help their patients get access to social services or access to housing if they're homeless. And once you have those fundamental water supply pieces in place, that's when people can really get healthier. So I, I think about this idea of when I'm dealing with a problem, whether it's with work or with my kids or whatever it is, what are we really upset about here? Not what my kid comes to me upset about, but like, what is the underlying issue? Um, and how can I take a step back and take a bigger picture perspective to problem solving? Because once you address the systemic issues, everything else is going to get easier. And I think about that a lot. Incredibly inspirational. And uh, the book is When Women Lead. The author is our old friend, Julia Borston. I can't thank you enough for doing this and sharing some of the stories from the book and your journey. Uh, you are still uh, very much in the middle of, uh, but uh, awfully accomplished. And it's a joy to be a little, a little piece of uh your life uh, here on the east coast on occasion and thanks so much for talking to us thank you so much matt i look forward to seeing you in person again soon tv ads can make for some memorable powerful stories the only problem for advertisers is until now they haven't been fully measurable. Mountain's self-serve platform, Performance TV, provides the up-to-date insights you need to take the guesswork out of measuring your connected TV ads impact. Mountain lets you build customizable dashboards with the metrics that matter most to you, including when viewers visit your website or make a purchase after watching your ad, regardless of what household device they use. Visit Mountain.com to learn more.